You are listening to the LTN Book Club, a bi-weekly read-along podcast positioned at the intersection of nerd and literary culture. Our show is hosted by Madeline Turnipseed and is a proud member of the LTN Podcast Network. For more information on the show, the hosts, the books they're reading, and to subscribe, please visit lovethynerd.com slash book club. very excited to have you here today we are talking about part two that's chapters 13 through 23 of the fifth season by nk jemison i am madeline and i'll let my other uh, co-host introduce themselves i'm katie i'm john and i am matt and thank you all for being here today um the fifth season was published in 2015 by orbit books and it won the hugo award for the best novel in 2016 um, content warnings, uh, and this book does discuss child death, child abuse, violence, slavery, sex, racism, torture, and cannibalism. So we will be touching on those topics in some aspect today in our discussion. Um, this is the part two, as I mentioned, if you have not listened to part one, we talk about a whole lot of important things there. Go back and listen to part one, um, before you continue on with us. Uh, In our mailbag today, uh, Colby Whitaker, who's a member of our LTN community, uh, says about uh, this book, it is definitely a slow burn, but she, N.K. Jemison, is very good. Um, Aaron Warmbier, who is a LTN community member, uh, one half of Co-Optional, and has also contributed to our LTN website, says, uh, can you just choose all my reading material from now on? Because I'm absorbed. I'm really glad these kids kids um, are obsessing over their own projects today because I just need to read (laughs) and now I'm caught up enough to listen to the podcast without spoilers finally the first four chapters I moved slowly but then I got all caught up and now I can't stop Uh, Yeshua S. Horka who's also a member of our LTN community says he got about a third of the way through but never finished keep going you can do it I believe in you it is worth it I promise we believe in you Alrighty. Um, we talked about this uh, last time, but if you're joining us still, um, who should read this book? Why would people read this book? Fantasy lovers of yeah, all kinds. Definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, Excellent. Sorry. Excellent world building, great yeah. characters, just a lot of interesting world aspects, m- great magic system, all and the fantasy. And if you definitely enjoy aspects of stories that involve social dynamics between magic users and non-magic users, um, this book really heavily focuses on uh, the, I guess, oppression of magic users, um, which kind of ties into uh, a racial allegory as well. This this idea of uh, institutional oppression, um, institutional discrimination um is present in the book it's so if you are uh, a student of that um this would be a book for you as well yeah it definitely gives an excellent kind of uh character portrayal of that struggle 
So if you're looking for something to kind of learn more, but don't really want to go into the academic, this gives you a good, uh, not even just with race and all of that, but also just harder social dynamics. Um, It portrays them really well and explores them and kind of doesn't shy away from the harder, harder aspects of culture and social dynamics. Yep. I read a review that says uh, if anybody who's ever been othered um, can mm. can find um, resonance in this book, and I think I think that's mm. true. Definitely. Mm. Um, also, it it has some post apocalyptic survival aspects as well. So if you're a fan of that, I'd say maybe a third to a quarter of the book deals with those issues. Um, from this point on, we'll, we we will be entering the spoiler zone. Um, for the second half of the book, chapters 13 through 23. So lots of spoilers. Thanks for joining us for about... Thanks for joining us for about three minutes and we're going to be continuing on. (laughs) We're going to be continuing on. Right. Um, so just like in the first half, um, there are many parallels uh, in the second half uh, between st- civil rights struggles in real life um, and what we see in the book. Um, we'll get mm. we'll get started talking about um, guardians in particular. Well, I mean, so I really liked Katie what you said earlier about kind of comparing guardians to uh, lower socioeconomic status uh, white people in the reconstruction South um, and the way that uh, people in power would play off of the, I mean, in in any situation, right. They play off of the lesser privileged classes by giving one class power over the other. And so they're too busy fighting within themselves to actually like overthrow um, the the institution. And so um, the guardians are mages Um they are they are the children of origins the mages in this book um and they but they are born without or like not uh natural orogenic ability and so they have some kind of like surgical implant that enhances a part of their brain that gives them the ability to do things not the same as the like it's not the same as origin it's different abilities yeah. different it's control different ways over. of control yeah like exactly almost um and what's interesting is like going like going off of that idea of um so i i was talking we were talking about this before the podcast but like john said um in the old south they uh slave owners often hired um poor white people to uh hunt down runaway slaves and um like kind of police in a way the like any any uprisings or anything like that um and you kind of see that in the book as well when you uh, when alabaster and cyanite are um in the coastal town and you know the uh obelisk that's the word <laughs> um it, like they they had found that rogue obelisk and she wrote raised it and they didn't hear anything back from the fulcrum and then suddenly a guardian appears and he's kind of been 
sent to bring them back or take them down. Um, actually take down Sienite since she's the one who was controlling it. Um, and so in a way it, it is very much that kind of situation of a, Oh, you know, they're out of line. They're going rogue, bring them back or put them down. Yeah. It's, but then at the same time, like the book explores the idea of life outside of institutional oppression. Right. And so um, in the second half of the book, we, uh, follow Baster and Cyan to an island off the coast of the mainland where Origins or Ragas are not oppressed. In fact, they're given leadership positions in the society. Um, and we meet in and, and and it's just this, this, it raises the question that is this oppression really necessary in order for society to thrive? Or is it just what the Sansa Empire decided was the best thing at the time because they feared the power that origins had, um, which is kind of the oppression that you, impression that you get, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, which is pretty common for a fantasy series where the non-magic u- users oppress the magic users because they're scared of the power that the magic users have. Um, but in Inan's case, he's actually the leader of his community because they value his talents as opposed to squat trying to squelch them. And so you get that nice dynamic of the pair, the like um, the foil, I guess. And we'll talk more about in and as a foil later on, but um, so they definitely uh, Jemison is definitely exploring um, or at least making a comment on the systems that we have in place that we think are necessary um, as a society, but not, aren't maybe not necessary. Maybe we're kind of just going off of habit and, and well, or tradition. And what's interesting is that like, it's not an ideal situation on the Island either because Inan actually can't use his origin powers. Like he doesn't have as much control or as much power as Cyanite or Alabaster because they've been trained. And so they can do so much more with their power and so much like be able to help a lot more than he can because they've been trained. So it kind of gives this impression of like, you know, you should like it kind of that it would be good to have a middle ground Mm -hmm. where there's not oppression, but there's like an education system where they can, go and train themselves to like be better at their, at their natural talents. And um, surely we don't have to traumatize people to make them effective human beings. Uh, exactly. <laughs> break their hand as a child. If you didn't. Yeah. Ca- um, so where they can utilize that and like get go to the best of their abilities to be able to help because i mean honestly like a lot of their power could very much help society if they were like if they were trained that way and it so having that training is a good thing it's not necessarily a bad thing as you see with inan because he can't do nearly as much but it's the oppression that makes it so toxic and so oh yeah just devastating for both alabaster and cyanite so it's like ah it's one of those oh i just wish there was a middle ground kind of feelings well and like when you're reading you think about like the fact that the whole book starts with essen finding her son dead because Mm -hmm. he used his ability to save his town like 
everyone in in their town is alive because Uche was an origin and saved the town. That's that's not so. Esun was the one that saved the town. Well, I thought it was Uche that saved. He used the ability because she was out of the town. Yeah, she the, was. At, so she was teaching at Crush. Oh. And came home and found him, and she saved the town without even thinking about it. Um while she was grieving over Uche's body. And that's why it was a, it was going to be touch and go for her to get out of town gotcha. because um, her doctor friend, whose name I don't remember said the timing isn't right, but people are going to think that Uche saved the town and not you because um, Jija and uh, Nasun left before the big shake. I, I was, yeah, but there was a minor one, wasn't there? That because that's why he was killed. He did something orogenic. So he did something, but nobody else saw it besides Jija, as far as we know. Oh yeah, because it does say Uche, Uche must have done something, mm-hmm. and Jija realized. Yeah, but still, everyone in that town is alive because of because of Araga. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah, and like, but yet they're also going to like when she's leaving the town, they try to kill her. So, yep. mm-hmm. you know, and she kills and them she, all. <laughs> yeah. But, Self-defense. But, you know, it's fine. Well, and that, that was part of the, like the whole point uh, back when Alabaster and Sienite went to see the um, node was because they, they made the point of like, it's, it's almost like an instinct to do it. Which is why they can the, lobotomize. lobotomize. That's, that's the one I was looking for. Um, the orogenic children, and they still work as the node maintainers because it, they don't need to think to be a node maintainer. They just need to be able to sense danger um, to use their power. And that is like, so they basically strip them down to the instinct level and. That's that's kind of it's kind of interesting how that comes out in a variety of ways um, throughout the book as far as just instincts versus control um, when it comes to the origenic abilities because a lot of the times like you get Sienite and she's she acts on pure instinct as well as control so like when she and Alabaster are being pinned down by the um, by the guardian in the crystal town right before they get uh, dragged away by the stone eater she reaches for the obelisk just out of instinct like it's it's a survival kind of instinct that she does and there's just been like there's numerous times throughout the book that she just does that like where it's just it's just like she doesn't go oh I should probably use this to utilize the power it's it's not a conscious thinking through of something. It's a, it's a reaching and a grab and a, which is why they have to temper it. So you see that with this as soon, like where she kind of like, there's a couple times where she kind of goes to do use her orogenic powers and then just kind of like holds herself mm. and controls herself. And cause, but she has to consciously do that as opposed to, the other way, way around whereas and that's i think what makes the the kind of magic system interesting is because in a lot of other magic systems it's the other way around where you have to consciously use the magic and con- consciously 
uh, do the spells and uh, make things go. And like, you have to practice it like that, as opposed to it being just instant, instinctual, something you don't even have to learn. It's, you have to learn to control it. You have to learn to maximize it. But even if you get no training whatsoever, you can still do it as shown in Uchi and, um, Cora. Inon and Cora. Yeah. So it's, it's like one of those things where it's just an interesting flip of the magic systems for fantasy. And that speaks a bit to the, the civil rights aspect of the book as well, because there are things that um, minority groups will do instinctually for survival, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's, and they don't even think about it and it can be beneficial and harmful um, both to them individually and also to the, to society as a whole. Um, So, I mean, and you can think about that in terms of like abuse survivors as well, the innate Mm -hmm. reaction to, uh, lash out in the midst of aggression to sur- as a survival technique, stuff like that. And so there's definitely or to shut down. Yeah, or to shut down. Um, which yep. Essen does both. Um yeah. and so um I think I really appreciated how deep into the human psyche uh Jemison explores with the magic system. Yeah. And it it's one of the great things about fantasy is it allows you to investigate some of the deeper truths um mm-hmm. in a without coming out and saying, you know, this is a psychology textbook, right? Uh, right. <laughs> but yeah. And it, it's great because uh, especially like, so you get this kind of in the first half of the book, but you also really get this in the second half of the book where she does portray that kind of, um, that how, like what really struck me was um, as someone who, has survived abuse is like how accurately she portrayed life after that. Like mm. the reactions, the way you think, the way you analyze things like you. <laughs> so there've been some books I've read and, you know, it makes it clear that this character is abuse survivor or whatever. And you're reading it and you're just like, but are they mm. <laughs> like, uh, I'm not really sure the way they're thinking, the way they're acting, that doesn't line up at all. Um, and she really, and I think that's why like some, some of the parts were so hard because it's like, I connected with that so much and like, I understood what the characters were going through so much because it was so accurate and I knew what that was like. And I just it, like, and that's one of the reasons why I think she's, this book and the author is brilliant just for the pure accuracy of some of those harder portrayals of characters. Like she didn't go for the stereotypical chosen one trope or any of the other kind of trope-ish kind of things. She really wrote characters that have life, that have, that are people Yeah. kind of feeling. That's, mm-hmm. that's really what you get when you're reading reading these characters. One of the things that really broke my heart um, about Cyanite um, was it's two years after she caused the massive volcanic explosion in the coastal town 
and she feels really bad about it, understandably. So she goes to go see it and mm-hmm. she does this incredible um, feat of virogeny where she quiets the volcano and smooths it out. And like, it's still going to be freakishly hot, but it's been an active volcano for four years and she just basically shut it off. And she, mm-hmm. and she won't let herself feel proud about it. She won't let anybody tell her she did a good job. Um, Alabaster tries to give her uh, rings, which are what the fulcrum would do. Um, anytime you like level up, basically you get another ring. Um, he tries to give her a couple rings to say like, you've done an incredible thing. Your powers keep growing. Um, and she is mad at him because she feels like that she did something that the fulcrum would have wanted her to do. And she won't even like let herself feel good about a a massive personal achievement because it's Mm -hmm. so wrapped up in that, in that pain of of everything that she learned and where she came from. And, and that's, Again, another really accurate thing is just like sometimes you just like good accomplishments just accomplishments just leave a bad taste in your mouth and people are like, oh, that's so great. And you just kind of are like, yeah, it is. But can we move on from it now? Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, <laughs> I... Uh, recently got my mas- finished my master's in English and I there were going to have a uh, graduation commencement thing. This was before the pandemic got like crazy. So uh, and I declined because I just couldn't like I really wanted to go and walk, but at the same time I couldn't I didn't want all the pressure like social pressure that would come with that. Um, I know that sounds very vague, but like, um, with the accomplishment means that people want, like, they want to throw a party or something. And I just didn't want that contact. I didn't want that, um, route into my life at that time. And so I gave, I didn't, I, I like declined going to the commencement thing because of that. And it was like, here's this big accomplishment. I should really want to be, like, want to walk. It's huge. But, and and to a certain extent, I do, like, I did enjoy it. But at the same time, I can't, like, there's that sense of you can't publicly enjoy it because it brings things into my life that I didn't want. And so it was like, so, like, again, with CNI, like, that was part of that feeling and what's even more interesting is that that act of hers actually brought like it gives you that sense that that's what brought the guardians to their home eventually like that's how they got her that's Mm. how they tracked her and you just feel this like frustration of like it was such a good thing to do it was the right thing to do and it saved a lot of lives because of it because it it flat out says that it would have caused the next season and yet it brings such personal calamity on her for doing it and it brings such personal pain for her to do it not only just by not being able to celebrate the accomplishment but then for the consequences it brings with the guardians and 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 that the guardians and the fulcrum left it for two years as bait 
because they knew that cyanide was the kind of person that would want to fix it. Exactly. And that's just so, so frustrating. (laughs) Like kind of that, like frustration of knowing that feeling and frustration of just wishing it could have been different, but at the same time, recognizing that there's a good story plot. And so therefore, yeah, fair enough. But, you know, just that, that like, I, I get a little kind of attached to the characters sometimes. And sometimes I'm just like, but don't put them through that. <laughs> Even though I, need, I know they need to go through that for the, <laughs> for the book kind of thing. But that was definitely one of those moments of like, no, really? No. Oh, no. And just that dread of turning pages, waiting for the inevitable to happen. Another parallel uh, between civil rights and uh, what we see in the book is um, towards the end, um, Alabaster tells Cyanite a story about um, the season of teeth and the founding of the fulcrum. Um, And it's, it's so, this is probably the, the thinnest allegory to, uh, Mm -hmm. to racism um, I feel like, and, and racial tension here in America, uh, because essentially what was happening is the ruling class during the season um, used brute force to take over uh, smaller comms and comless and eat people yeah. uh, because there was no food. And then um, even when there was food, they still kept. Yep. Like It was then turned into a delicacy. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, kind of the 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 one big story that everyone in the world knows about um, origins is the story of Misalem and Shimshana. Misalem being uh, the origin that was defeated by Shimshana, who was the first guardian. Um, and she was um, you know guard of the the emperor and that Misalem's village and or family was completely decimated um, for to be cannibalized um, some say for for the emperor's table um, and it's a horrendous allegory of the way that that I feel like that the young people of color are absolutely chewed up mm. by society um, because they don't fit a a predefined definition of what success should be. And they also are not in the positions of power. Like it, it's the whole book. It's always, it, it's the people in power. It's the people with resources and stuff, taking advantage of those who don't. And that was just like a horrific allegory of just how far it goes how far they use their power to chew up, literally, in this case, um, the classes and races beneath them. And this is the story that's the foundation of the modern Sanzid empire that, that mm-hmm. the whole series is, or the whole book start. That's, that's like the society that they're living in, right? So like at the beginning of this is the very 
horrific cannibalization of like other ethnic groups and other races um, in order to survive, but then also as just a show of power and strength. Um, And then when someone tries to rise up using orogenic ability, we have the, the one mage group oppressing the other mage group kind of scenario going on. Um, It's just, it's a lot. There's a lot of child death in this series. Um, It's down to the bedrock of the mythology of this area of this, of like the whole reason why there's so much tectonic activity on this continent is because someone killed father earth's only child and he grew angry and started creating all these catastrophes. And so, and then you have Missalem who wanted to overthrow the empire because the emperor killed his children. And then you have, um, oh God, well, you, the book starts off with Essun going after her husband because he killed their son. And then, you know, you have Sinite and Bastard and their son, that death. Mm. And it's just, it, there's a lot of, it, the, a lot of the motivations, just how horrible it can be for children. And like, I was talking to a coworker about this actually today because we were back in school about how I have uh, a particular uh, like period of class where I have a lot of students of color who I can tell um, have been treated a certain way by uh, some of my co like by teachers. I wouldn't say my coworkers particularly because I don't really know them. This is only my second year at the school, but by society, by the education system from wherever they're coming from. And so they definitely are, they step into my class, you know, with an attitude, like with what people would might take as an attitude or like with this need to kind of distance themselves from me and kind of show themselves, show me that they're good people or maybe just, or be apathetic towards school in general. Um, and just the need to like take a step back, realize like these are the kids that society has really trained to be this way because everyone's always thought that they're going to get in trouble. So they, mo- they kind of act like they're going to get in trouble already and just be like, no, like I know this isn't what you want. Like I know this is, you're more than this, right? I'm full on Moana moment. Like mm-hmm. I put the, put the stone back in Tafiti. Uh, like, <laughs> Sorry, spoiled that movie for you if you hadn't seen it. <laughs> um, and uh, like, you know, just kind of be there for them. And so I'm just kind of sitting here, just sitting in like the, the just darkness. Cause like I have a six month old, right? So like, and she's Hispanic and she doesn't really look like it, at least not right now. Who knows how she grows up to be. But like at the same time, like we're raising her very in a Hispanic. We're taking her to get her ears pierced this weekend because. She's Hispanic and Hispanic, ba- Hispanic babies, female babies have their ears pierced. And like my wife's like, it, it, I'm getting so tired of my baby not looking like a girl because she doesn't have her ears pierced. Oh, uh, <laughs> it's just, that's just, and I'm like, you're right. Like I look at her and she's, she's not a girl because she doesn't have her ears pierced, even though she is. And it's not, but culturally that's how it is. And so like, she's going to have that distinction for the rest of her life. Unless she choose, unless we take them out or she has a reaction or whatever, you know, her, her holes close up, but like probably won't. And she's going to be culturally raised that way. And what's that going to do to her? Like, given the world we live in, if she starts speaking Spanish, like I remember growing up and being told, like, I couldn't speak Spanish at school. Um, like, it wasn't allowed. Like, I would get a detention if I spoke Spanish with other Hispanic students at school. Um, wow. And just, and I lived on the border. 
right? <laughs> so like in a very Hispanic dominated society, the education system was still there, you know, trying to push down non-whiteness. Um, and so I just, I'm looking at this, the whole fulcrum and the education system there and the system and the, just the way that they treat the students, the grits, and then looking at so many children being sacrificed um, at try to, because they want to maintain the status quo, um, whether it's the known maintainers or it's the children, or even it's cyanide killing her own son because she doesn't want him to be taken by the fulcrum. Um, like it's, it's just so real and so heavy. Um, and, you know, after I've come back from the summer and talking to my, my students of color who witnessed all of the social unrest that is still going on, don't get me wrong, just because it's not on the, it's not on the evening news doesn't mean it's still not there. Um, Brianna Taylor still hasn't really gotten any justice. Like yep. things haven't really changed. Um, you know, we've, the protests are still going on, still need to happen. Uh, and so having that conversation with them and seeing seeing a hope because they are aware and they're they're pushing for change and they are the future generation, you know, typical teacher spiel, my kids are the future and my kids of color are <laughs> strong and they're great and it's I'm so excited for them, but also just being so sad that I didn't do more um, and that the society is still where it is, you know. I feel like Matt has been really quiet. I have been really quiet. Um, wow. Um, the reason I've been, this, this book, the first half was, was tough for me. Um, the second half was worse for me. Um, there's a lot of um, historical parallels that are really, really evident, um, at, least, at least to me, that I came across when going through uh, the second half here, um, when Katie was talking about the, especially when, um, you know, when Katie was talking about the going through the towns and, you know, and the cannibalism part and just the allegory as far as them swallowing up. Um, I mean, that, that was a, a common, you know, thing, especially, and not really, um, civil rights, but just in history period. So, you know, your, your post-slavery, you know, reconstruction era times, um, a lot of those really were, at least in, in, at least to me, when I read them, I was like, wow, this reminds me of Rosewood. This reminds me of Greenwood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and just, you know, where an entire, you know, black towns just, you know, burned, swallowed up to, to a ground, you know, hundreds killed. Um, and obviously the ruling class, there was, you know, no retribution for it, you know, just moves on, you know, as, a, as it was another Tuesday. Um, mm -hmm. And also some of the, the story building in the beginning as far as the, um, when we were talking about the quote unquote benefits of being trained um, compared to those who were raw, more instinctive in their powers. Um, it really reminded me a lot of the, unfortunately, still ongoing debate of um, benefits, quote unquote, of colonialism, um, mm. not just the United States, but, you know, uh, any country that has, you know, gone to another and taken over and implanted their culture and their rules into that society. 
And some countries, um, whether it be, you know, in Asia Pacific, whether it's Africa, whether it's, uh, um, you know, Northern Asia or East or, or Western Asia, uh, there is always this huge debate as far as, um, you know, whether they should have allowed um, the colonizers to stay longer because, um, you know, some countries kicked out you know, and, and kicked out the colonizers and they're not doing as well as countries that had, had the colonizers in longer. They have well, those countries have more technology and they're more advanced than the others who who have resisted more. So they're like, oh, wow, maybe we should have stayed. And then they should let them stay. And they're like, why, why would you say that? And, you know, because yeah, we have big buildings and all this, but you know, we had years and years and years of oppression and these people stole our land and they still have our land. And um, like what's going on in South Africa right now. So um, a, a lot of this was very, uh, I, I read this book as a kind of a, an internal self-help reflection because there's so um, there's so much in it that relates to the black struggle um, in the United States as well as beyond, and also the fact that um, when Katie especially was talking about the, you know the pain and the expression of pain um, that's very evident through this book um, amongst black people, especially in the United States. Um, self-help, mental help is not something that is done much. It's uh, looked upon as weakness. It's frowned upon, especially with men, but just amongst black people, period. It's looked as a white, you know, someone says they're going to therapy or they're seeing a psychologist or a therapist. You know, that's that's white people stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it's not, uh, it's, it's something that doesn't, it doesn't happen much. And mm-hmm. um, culturally, we're, you know, we're taught to, you know, to, to tough it out, um, you know, to not express it, to let it go, to deal with, you know, to deal with it. Um, and seeking help is, is not something that we're, it's just, it's not a common thing. So be uh, the, the expression that I, that I get as I, as I look through um, the phases of, you know, of, uh, of Essendama Sinai's uh, life, um, I, I, I can see the effects of that character bottling up feelings, you know, expressing herself, um, physically or through her powers compared to dealing with the, the mental anguish, um, and pain that has come through, you know, the years of abuse and torture and coercion, um, that, that she's gone through. And very often, um, people of color here have had to deal with the, the same thing um, and, and just have no outlet for it. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you'll, you'll have, and honestly, like I, I have my own theories on, on who did what, like I, as I went to the book, I started to really feel that, um, you know, that Essence husband didn't kill Uche. I, I was getting to the point where I think she might've done it herself. Um uh. To you know, in in, in, a, in a you know a way of protecting him from you know the world to to come, and then when later on you know when she smothers uh, in on, I'm like, yeah, that kind of confirms my you know my suspicion there that you know she wants to protect them from that part of the world um, and have mm. the world impact them her the way it's impacted her. 
because um, she can't see a a good life, a help, you know, an enjoyable life. You know, for them, she sees a life a lifetime of pain and control and coercion and abuse, and nobody wants that for their their children. So, uh, it, it's it's a very <laughs> it's a very tough read for me, and sometimes it's hard for me to just jump right in there and be like, "Hey, so um, this reminds me of when <laughs> you know X, Y, and Z." Yeah, but uh, it's so as as I was, and, and that's why um, when I I, I look at um, especially when we were talking about the guardians, um, they they kind of reminded me um, like John and Katie were talking about as far as the the comparison to to poor whites, but they honestly reminded me more of quote unquote token black people. Um, Mm. You know, if people were listening or not familiar with the term, um, but a a token black person is essentially somebody who uh, stands for, actually, I just use the slang term stand. So someone who is okay with the the oppression that they're in because they're in a position where it's not as bad for them as it is for everyone else. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, hear that as an Uncle Tom term or, 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 or house Negro compared to field Negro. Um, so um, being that, okay, so the, the, re- the reason why I really felt that they were more tokens than they were you know, on Nagor for poor whites is because they're related, um, because guardians and origins are, you know, they're, they're related. So, um, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the control, and then also the physical touch component there, there as well, where, um, token blacks are easier to are have easier access to to the rest of us so it's it's easier for them to 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 apply the the control from the ruling class because they can they can easily more easily infiltrate and influence um and by you know when that's where the you know, the touch allegory for me comes in where the ruling class himself you know cannot it's a lot harder for them to continue to be subversive um, in in ways as well as because any any well done and I hate to say well done but any um, highly effective oppression is going to be uh, oppressive in a very uh, upfront manner as well yeah it's, it's going to be it's going to be subtle yeah. as well as upfront you're going to have the upfront part mm-hmm. like we think of the Nazis they had they had their marches and they had their uniforms they're out there in your face. They also have the Gestapo doing, you know, a lot of dirty work behind the scenes. So it's going to be all be very subtle as well as very upfront. It's going to be a two pronged attack. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel the guards were were that um, that part where it's like essentially, hey, this is you know, this is your blood. This is your cousins. This essentially is a part of you. They look like you. They they can do different things like you can. Um, so they should be like you. and They should be for your cause, but they're not because their life is a little bit better. They get to sleep, you know, they get to work in the house. They're not in the field. They're not sweaty. They get to wear the, the fancy clothes that, that, that Massa wears, you know, they, mm. they and, and that really uh, stuck out to me because in the climate that we had, that we're in, um, if you are on certain aisles, you know, politically, um, regardless yeah. of what they, regardless of what you do or what you say or how you actually are when it comes to, um, you know, your, your people, you're going to be automatically assume, they're going to automatically assume that you 
are for or against without even knowing um, what you actually do. So that really just just jumped out at me. It was like, okay, I, I, I can see where the author is really going here. And the fact that a lot of times you'll have um, a person who you, you've known for a long time who's been someone you felt like that was a mentor that was unfortunately playing you the entire time. Um, mm. and continually and because you've built up a trust there you know they they made a bond they could you know especially very on um, with Shafa and, and, and Dama and you can see you know the conflict internally like she her instinctively she knows better um, and then as it progresses through the story uh, the fact that that watchful eye has been there that whole time continuing to behind the scenes pull the strings poke and prod um, out of her the entire time, and and, and that's unfortunately uh, something that we see in IRL way too often, especially within you know the black community. Well, to wrap up here, um, what can we learn from this book um, now that we've come to the end of it? That would help us love people more. I mean, a lot of the things that we said before still apply on the second half of. Yeah. So in our previous podcast, I think pretty much all of it still applies to the second half. Um, it was really just more of an expansion and a um, building upon those same lessons um, for the second half of the book. So just understanding people, seeing their struggles and working like working to take your own perspective and add other people's perspective to understand them better and understand how their, their struggles and their circumstances may um, like how, how it dictates their life, how, how they react and how they live their lives because of these things. It's just a really good book for, developing empathy and developing mm-hmm. a like a a kindness and a and a what's it good, the word was just on the tip of my tongue a um like a n- not a softness but like a, a better way of viewing the world yeah. kind of giving people m- more room to um yeah, Matt, Matt message tenderness. That's a good. That's actually a good word. Like a ten, like a oh tenderness of w- a more tender way of viewing the world to where you're not always just assuming the worst of people. Because I mean, for like most people assume the worst with Essun and Cianite because of who they because of who she was, and it's one of those things where it's like you can't see everything that somebody has gone through in their life. And just because they have a hardness, like kind of taking those people that do have a hardness or do have kind of a prickliness to them in a way and taking the time so, like, and the space to give them room to actually like explain why they view things like this and why they react like this and all of that because experiences are not universal. Like 
there some people have it much much harder and some people have it much much easier and it benefits all of us to try and better understand the struggles that people have because then we can love them better like we can the more you can relate to somebody the more likely you are to give them mercy give them forgiveness give them love treat them kindly it's the people that you think are completely different that are others like the othered kind of thing that you tend to treat more harshly and so it it definitely gives that kind of humanizing aspect to what a lot of those who are othered go through and understanding that can give you a like a a way to engage with it and be more kind and be more less cynical about the, I mean, the world is still terrible, but like maybe less cynical about people. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I also would like to like, you know, if you had, if you had said, you know, to 18 year old John, that one of his role models for being a father would be a bisexual man who lived in a throuple. Um, <laughs> I would be a bit confused and I'd probably laugh in your face and get angry because I was a very different person at 18. Um, but, and so, and knowing my like religious background, um, I grew up in an area where <laughs> bisexual men in throuples were not people to, uh, held in high esteem. Um, but it's, you know, just because I might disagree or not necessarily agree with certain life, life choices or uh, lifestyles or people and who they are, um, I doesn't mean I can't learn from them. Um, and that's kind of like what Katie was saying, but I just wanted to underscore the fact that uh, in an this throw off care. This this one character in the short section of the book uh, has a huge impact, um, and I think you, if you take that and extrapolate it, to realize that like people that you might just write off because you disagree with how they look or who they date or whatever, who they love, what they want to do with their They're lives, <laughs> you uh, doesn't matter. Like you can still learn something from them, and they still have value. Like they are people. Yeah. Uh, loved by God and um, you know, they're here for a reason and like, not that you should love them just because they have value in your life. That's stupid. But like realize that like, I don't know, just be, don't write them off and their experience off just because you can't understand it or cause I would never be able to understand what it is to be a bisexual man in a, in a throuple, but I can understand what it is to be a father. Um, and I see in an ambassador, both wrestle with that and you know, all the fathers that we talked about in this book. Um, and I'm able to take pieces of that and kind of help shape my worldview. Um, so. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, for myself, I feel like uh, probably one of my favorite lines in the whole book is when uh, Damaya and Binoff are uh, sneaking around in the fulcrum and uh Amaya is a grit. She is an origin and Binoff is a leader, uh, a child leader cast who has snuck in uh, to go exploring because she feels like it, basically. <laughs> and um, 
big culture clash between the two of them. Um, and at one point, um, Beanoff is trying to bribe Demaya into doing something for her. Um, and she says, well, I'll give you privileges whenever you leave the fulcrum. And Demaya's like, we don't leave the fulcrum. Like that there's, Beanoff had no way to comprehend the life experience mm-hmm. of Demaya at all, even though she was trying to sneak in as someone like Demaya, as a grit. Um, and Beanoff's like, well, why not? And she's like, because the leader said so. And she's like, well, that's dumb. And, and Demaya says, you're a leader, change the rule. Isn't mm-hmm. that what leaders are supposed to do? Um, and so my takeaway from this is to use my white woman privilege um, to make life better for people that don't have it. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, just because I can go jogging at night um, with relative relative ease uh, does not mean that I should just get to enjoy that and that be the end of the story. Um, so absolutely, my takeaway from this is is motivation to change the world for people that aren't me. I feel like Matt has something really awesome to say, and it makes me very sad that his mic died. Right. Oh, he's typing. Hold on. Oh, we will read it for him. <laughs> this book can really help people understand the emotional turmoil that others are enduring under the surface. And with that emotion influencing their outward actions, especially as Christians, we need to love people and understand that what is on the surface isn't what's really going on. It's mm-hmm. true. Thank, thank you, Matt. Alrighty. Uh, this is our wrap up. Um, I am Madeline Turnipseed. You can follow me at mad underscore seed on Twitter. And I'm Katie Tejador. You can follow me at K-R-R Tejador, which is T-E-J-E-D-O-R in, on Twitter. I am John Campoverde, and you can follow me at, at J Camp underscore over underscore day. And for Matt... Williams, you can follow him at on Twitter at at underscore rockin Mr. M R Magic Rockin R O C K I N uh no no G. So Rockin underscore Rockin Mr. Magic on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. Next month we will be talking about how to live safely in a science fictional universe by Charles Yu. It is about half as long as the fifth season, so we're going to do it all in one go. And we would love one go. <laughs> and we would love for you to join us then as well. If you have thoughts on the book we're discussing, or that we might read on air, like we did today, or books that you'd like to suggest for us to read, you can drop me a line at madeline at lovethynerd.com. Be sure to check out all the podcasts in the Love Thy Nerd Podcast Network. The Pull List is a bi-weekly show about how comics, pop culture, and faith affect culture at large. And it's hosted by Chris Poirier and Hector Murai. Humans of Gaming is a weekly show about uh, video and board games that features open and honest conversations about games, life, and belief. That is hosted by Drew Dixon and Chris Coltney. Free Play is a weekly show about any and all things nerd, where you feel more like a participant and less like a rando on a message board. Hosted by Kate Katawaki, Bubba Stalkup, and Matt Warmbier. 
Church Nerds is a podcast partnership between Love Thy Nerd and Back Row Radio, hosted by Anna and Bubba Stallcup. This is a special morning show each Friday that combines their church cred and their nerd cred to show you just how well these two ways of life come together. Also, be sure to connect with us on all your social media platforms. Just search Love Thy Nerd or find links on our website, lovethynerd.com. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the LTN Book Club. Our show is hosted by Madeline Turnipseed and is a proud member of the LTN Podcast Network. For more information on the show, the hosts, the books they're reading, and to subscribe, please visit lovethynerd.com slash book club.